This podcast is recorded on the ancestral lands of the Tongva people. Welcome to the Create Well podcast, where we explore the intersections of creativity, wellness, and entrepreneurship. I'm Ray Saragosa, musician, songwriter, boogie boarder, ice cream lover. <laughs> you can find my work on IG at, at Ray Saragosa. And I'm Erica Elon, visual artist, creative consultant, and paddleboarder. You can find my work on IG at, at Erica Elon. On this week's episode, we will be talking about leveraging influence into impact, what it can look like to utilize social media as a way to make change. Our guest this week is prolific and poignant. Wow. <laughs> Poign- poignant. How do I say I can't say the word. Poignant. Poignant. Oh my gosh. Our guest this week is prolific and poignant poet, Kinsale Houston. So good. They said if I want to make it, gotta starve and stress and sell. But if I'm gonna be an artist, well, I want to create well. Yeah, you gotta create well. Here we are. Episode six. Hi, Ray. Hey, Erica. Oh, it's nice to be in your apartment and right before our next heat wave. So today feels nice. I know. It's going to be 97 for the next two days. And then maybe we're in the clear. Yeah. We made it through our should we or should we not get Get an air conditioner? (laughs) We made it through that phase after this weekend. Yeah, I know. I have no AC. This week, yeah, we'll see. This weekend, I'll just get on my boogie board and just yeah. blow it out to sea every yeah. day. <laughs> so uh, what did you create this week? What did I create this week? Well, I released something that I created before. Yes. Um, I have a new song called They Say mm. that was released, and I'm really excited about the song. Um, you know, whenever I release new music, I you know, you've experienced this with me. I go to a very dark place. <laughs> It's really awful. I feel like really sad. Um, And it's just, I usually cry the day that I release a song. So fascinating. It's really bizarre. Um, I feel like a part of me dies when I release music, which is so interesting. Um, I feel like it must be something that's shared amongst artists. I can't Mm -hmm. imagine what it's like to sell a painting. To Mm -hmm. me, that sounds terrifying because you've created this thing and now Mm -hmm. you have to give it to someone else. Yeah. It's really wild. And so that's how it feels with releasing a song. It feels like this was like a part of my heart. And now I'm like giving it over to the world to judge. And obviously it's something that I, I do love and want to continue to do. But it feels like someone is like ripping out your heart and then your heart is like walking around outside of you. And, um, you know, I love this movie. It's called um, Rebel in the Rye and it's Hmm. about J.D. Salinger and, uh, you know, who wrote Catcher in the Rye, um, which when I was a kid was one of my favorite books. And uh, he stops publishing after Hmm. um, after he created uh, Catcher in the Rye he wrote prolifically and never published anything else. And not that I ever want to do that, but the the movie was so fascinating to me because he felt like art itself was about the creation. It was not about mm. the publishing of it. Right. I don't know if I agree with that. Um, obviously, it's not the way I want to live my life. And obviously, he made enough money from Catching yeah. a Rye to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Um so it's just a lot to ponder because it is so hard for me to release, but it, it it's so hard in a way that I know is what I'm supposed to be doing. You know, like it challenges me mm-hmm. and, 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 um, to end this very long intro, <laughs> <laughs> whenever I create something I'm proud, I'm proud of. Yeah. It's harder. To oh release. yeah. Have well, you and ever experienced that? Absolutely. Because, and like you use this, bodily language which I think is the best way to relay the feeling of it is it's a piece of you and it's like you're birthing something into the world and for paintings I'm always like it's like a baby going off into the world (laughs) and like you have no more control over how people encounter it and how and it's it tends thankfully to be a really positive experience right but you still are losing all of that physical connection right. and all of that control of it. Right. So it really is, it's a bodily piece of you that like moves yeah. out. And um, 
yeah i totally get that but mm-hmm. i it, it is fascinating to me like because uh, from the outside looking in seeing you release a song is like this is so dope and like oh my gosh finally everybody gets to listen to it and yeah. like I get to listen to it because I've been waiting for this one <laughs> and um by the way we'll play the song at the end so everyone knows what yes. we're talking about yeah oh it's so good and go watch the video too you you made the video at the beginning of quarantine, quarantine yeah and it's really profound and yeah a little bit haunting yeah it's a little a little scary I mean uh, for some backstory, everyone listening, the video I made, you can check it out on my website, raceatagosa.com or on Instagram or, or really anywhere. But uh, it's a video of me walking through downtown Los Angeles, like the day after the stay-at-home mm-hmm. order was put into effect here in LA. And um, I'm basically just walking past all of the venues and the restaurants and everything that's closed. Um, and at that time, you know, it was, so there was so much uncertainty as there yeah. is now, but at that point, um, as artists, gig workers, independent contractors, um, none of us were aware of whether or not we'd able, be able to qualify for unemployment. And so yeah. it was a very dark time, um, as it is now, but, uh, yeah, check out the video, but yeah, so it's weird. I get, I, mm-hmm. I'm still in my, my released music funk. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it's in, it's so it's so fascinating because uh, you know if I feel this way about my music and my songs, yeah, who knows how I'm gonna feel about having like actual babies? Oh my god! You know, I'm like <laughs> go off to college, go live your life. Like I'm gonna cry and just like roll up in a ball and like never leave my home. Oh. Um, but yeah, did you create anything this week? You know, this week was primarily photos for me Mm -hmm. and prepping for some photos next week so when I have these like kind of gig heavy photography weeks yeah I'm like just sitting in front of my computer and editing yeah which actually I really enjoy yeah um but I do get anxiety because I'm not painting Uh so I'm like I should be painting right now which is what I say to myself every day but I you know, I'm still in that practice of yeah. like, this is part of it. This is actually connected to yeah. my painting. And um, yeah, and they're both, there's two interesting campaigns coming up, a dope blanket launch um, with Thunder Voice Hat Co. And then um, working on exciting, like get out the vote kind of thing next awesome. week. So awesome. I'll have more info on that soon. Yay. But, can't wait. Yeah. yeah. I'm working on some get out the vote stuff too. So yes! yeah, exciting stuff. It's a, it's an important time right now just to be to be anyone right <laughs> we have to all be rallying around right. voting which is kind of what we're you know yeah. a little bit related to today's topic mm-hmm. leveraging influence into impact yeah. and it's something i know you are really thinking about on your platform right now somewhat because you're part of this awesome cohort yeah yeah so can you can you like frame a little bit influence impact and social media yeah as totally. an artist yeah, and I'm I'm so excited. We have it's it's funny for me to talk about because I know we have an amazing guest today who <laughs> she I just want to pass the mic to her right now, but I, I will know. give my small piece, but um you know, I'm a part of the Return to the Heart Society. Mm. Um Return to the Heart Society. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh it's a collective of indigenous women who all uh have influence in some way, shape, or form, whether that's as an artist or as an organizer. Yeah. Um, and it's it's really wonderful. Sarah Eagleheart put this all together. And we meet um, monthly, and we talk about different ways um, we can get out the vote. We can um, talk about narrative change. We can, mm-hmm. and we're, we're all a part of the fellowship is we're all writing essays, and that's we're so all um, doing live streams. And basically cheering each other on um to use our platforms at this very important time to um to you know make change and to right. have some impact right and it's really incredible right. um, and i'm learning so much from all of the women a part of the uh a part a part of the cohort and um yeah so i think that social media is a very great place to yeah. leverage influence to impact um i think that before COVID, I felt like a lot of my, I loved having in-person influence and I loved playing mm-hmm. live shows in front of thousands of people. And I loved um, influencing people, whether that was just with music or whether that was at a rally or whether right. that was this or that. Um, but now that that's gone, I'm trying to learn how 
to do more leveraging of influence to impact online. Definitely. And it, it is a challenging thing because, as we know, social media can be a difficult place. Yeah. And, um, but I think that it's not fair to social media to say it's all good or all bad. And mm. the best part about social media is really focusing in on how you can do good on it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so the return to the heart society has been amazing. And so right, right. now, I think it's a good like model of especially how we can collaborate yeah. for social change and and utilizing these platforms that we all have to some degree, whether that's, you know, just on your Facebook page mm-hmm. or on your Instagram, you, you probably have a few connections on there. Yeah. And that is some type of power. And what I think one of the like main questions I get asked from other artists is how to integrate the the circles of work that you're doing Mm -hmm. both putting your so we always talk about self-promotion right right? right. and it's essential and it's important and like last week it's important to know your worth and so how do you put your work out into the world Mm -hmm. while at the same time engaging it in the broader Mm -hmm. conversation and amplifying Mm -hmm. other people's voices And I think it's always going to be a push and pull and it's probably going to be a little messy, but there are some really incredible ways to bring your work into intentional conversation with what's happening. And you do that through your music. Um, That cohort really kind of offers a guide and a model for Mm -hmm. how to collectively do that and collectively push. Yeah, you can bounce ideas off of each other. Yeah. Yeah. And I think because one of the problems with right now in particular with with COVID and with social media is the experience of isolation with it Mm -hmm. and the anxiety and second guessing. Mm -hmm. But if you can start forming relationships with other people in Mm -hmm. a similar sphere to you Mm -hmm. to, to support one another, Mm -hmm. that's when things can really be pushed forward. And um, that's something that I think our interviewee exemplifies so mm-hmm. well is she has gained the trust mm-hmm. of so many folks online mm-hmm. by the way she shows up yeah. and the way That's that amazing. she communicates. Yeah. And because of that, her impact is really massive. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so I, I think the more we can think about like pulling in each aspect and, and putting our own work in conversation mm-hmm. with other people's work and right. with what's going on in the world, the more, um, what's the word? The more profound mm-hmm. um, the ways that we show up in those spaces and the more impact right. I think we ultimately have. Absolutely. And, you know, I know in the interview, we're going to get into what it can look like to mm-hmm. exactly like turn influence yes. into impact. But for you, is there a certain person or page other than our interviewee um, in addition to um, that you think does a really good job? Mm. Yeah. I, I would say there's probably so many people we both follow that are like, Oh my gosh, they are leaders like, and they're mobilizing people. And I would say in the last few months watching, I, I have an incredible friend, Nicole, who, right after George Floyd was murdered and um, kind of following the massive collective shift in Mm -hmm. our culture to the massive unveiling that for so many of us we've had, she launched a platform called Anti-Racism Daily. Mm -hmm. And just that name, I think, alone is like, it's the work that so many of us are, are trying to commit to. Right and trying to make a daily part of our lives. Um, And she has grown at an insane rate, Mm -hmm. again, just technically speaking, but because of the deep need for it. She saw the need. um, And and she speaks really well to that. She's not doing this for white folks. Mm -hmm. She's doing this for the future generations. Um, and she saw work. the need for this for the future generations yeah. and she's filled it and now put together a team to fill mm-hmm. that space and every single day they're educated. So just, just watching that. And that's an interesting, right. maybe like piece too of like, what are the needs that we see in the world? Mm-hmm. And like, where does your art and your skill and right. your, um, ability, how do they 
fill that space. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, and it's, it's wild to me whenever, I mean, you get this all the time and people are like, social media is a toxic place mm-hmm. and I just don't want to be a part of it. Yeah. Um, but you get to completely curate who you follow. Yeah. And if you follow Nicole, yeah. and if you follow <laughs> folks like Nicole who yes. are using their platform in very, very, um, very intentional ways and all of her posts are incredibly informative and moving um and so there are so many folks on social media Mm -hmm. who are really leveraging influence into impact in ways that are changing the world Mm. and are very informative for people like you and me who are also trying to get information yes and um i feel like i I don't go on social media to impact people as much as I do to be mm. impacted. Mm. You know what I mean? <laughs> Is that like yep. a word? Yeah. Does that make sense in the sentence? You know what I mean? Like I go there because there are so many artists doing incredible things and yeah. to share their work. Yes. Um, it's just like a multiplication thing. It's yes. like we have these circles and just like bring your circles to other circles, to other mm-hmm. circles, to other circles. Mm-hmm. And um, if some, if social media to you is a toxic place, then unfollow everyone who's toxic and start yeah. following folks folks like Nicole and can say oh yes yeah. and um just a quick note to folks that are learning so much from primarily um women of color is pay people pay people please <laughs> pay people as we're all learning yeah gleaning all this freaking yeah. incredible information don't forget people's Venmos their Patreons the yeah. ways that you can support Absolutely. how much emotional labor and work they're doing to teach us yeah. oh my gosh and if this is your first episode uh, listening to us make sure to listen to the last episode we talk yes. about paying people <laughs> um, it's so important uh, especially uh, people of color women of color who yes. historically have been yes. given the short end of the, of the stick and um, you know a lot of times especially when um, in the past couple of years as uh, anti-racism and just yeah. empathy for people of color uh-huh. has grown. People mm-hmm. will just reach out to me like, Hey, can I talk on the phone with you and like ask you questions? And I'm like, what Oof. about what? Like you still want to hear about the Brown experience? Like, <laughs> no, like, you know what I mean? Like, I'm like, yeah, like you should pay me for my time as yes. a consultant or an interview. Absolutely. So I'm so excited for this interview. Oh, me too. It's, an incredible interview i got to listen to it yesterday and uh kinsale i'm just a huge fan of kinsale we talk about her we talk about her a lot oh my gosh she's just like our role model it's (laughs) like what would kinsale do today and um anyway so excited i feel like i can't really say anything about it i think we just need to let her speak for herself because she's so well spoken and so eloquent and um, I was just writing down things as she spoke. I'm like, wow, that, that and this, and, yes. this and, and that word. <laughs> For real. Wow. Uh, all right. And here's Kinsale's. Hello, Kinsale. Hi. <laughs> Thanks for jumping on with me today. Um, uh, can you just really briefly introduce yourself to those listening? Yeah. Hi, I'm Kinsale. I am a poet, uh, performer, spoken word artist, and current college student. Amazing. Um, I saw somebody comment on one of your pictures this week. And they said, that's my president. And I was like, oh my gosh, that fits so well. (laughs) (laughs) That was so cute. (laughs) Well, and I think it fits with what we're talking about today. Like you are a force. You are so incredible and powerful. And we're talking about leveraging influence into impact. And you're the perfect person to be discussing this because you do truly have an incredible and a really beautiful influence on people. Um, and I've kind of watched that over the last months, particularly with COVID, but we'll get into all of that. I also realized that today is kind of an intense day for you as far as an internship I know you're doing right now. Yeah. How, how are things with that? I know you're working with housing in LA. Yeah, it's, I mean, 
it was just kind of a waiting game. And we talked about this a couple days ago, but like with the moratoriums they're lifting in LA, it's just a big rush of cases to the courthouses. And um, I mean, I'm still kind of waiting. I think all of us are kind of holding our breath to see how, how many cases we're going to have to work with to help tenants, you know, secure housing and fight back. And I think like that's, it's not too stressful right now, um, but I think mm. it's very necessary work. And so I'm kind of just waiting for that still. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for, thanks for doing that work. Um, what led you to words as a primary creative outlet? Oh my gosh. Well, I grew up, I guess, as many of us have with a lot of stories um, my mom is really a storyteller and any little story she tells you from her day turns into like a 20 minute long epic. I don't yes. know if this is just my mom or like every mom, but like <laughs> she will turn like the smallest thing into a 20 minute epic, like about, oh, she knows this guy. Oh, did you know his wife is like my cousin, something like that. And like, I used to think like, oh gosh, like here she goes talking like about like whatever again. But now I, I think I really make sure to listen and pay attention um, mm. because it, it, after a while, like I realized my grandmother used to tell stories like that. And when we would go somewhere, for example, back in Utah, uh, my grandmother would always have a story about where we were going. And unfortunately it usually was a story about like how a relative had like gotten hurt there or, oh my God. <laughs> or even died there. That was like her way <laughs> oh, of no. like, I know that was like her very like Navajo way of being like, don't, don't go there and do dangerous things but oh my god yeah but I was really little and I remember all of her stories and my mother's stories and not just of course the warning ones but all of them mm -hmm. um the ones about my family and even when my grandmother had dementia she would like sit with me and what she would do is just tell me stories and they were just all memories and they would go as far back as like the early 1940s like she had such a good memory even with dementia and of course like as you retreat further into that, you just keep talking and talking. And and that's what she would tell me and my mother. And like, my mother would be like, oh my gosh, like I haven't even heard this story before. And so when she passed away, I started to write to preserve what I'd heard from her because I think sitting with her and hearing her talk just reminded me about how important these stories were. And she probably hadn't told all of them during her life and how important it was to preserve all those little details, not just the ones she told me, but also about her and like how she would move her hands when she talked and how she would mm -hmm. carry herself and everything from my childhood. Because I think as I got older, I realized how valuable that was to like my, me and my family. And of course my mother um, and my, my grandfather passed away of cancer, likely related to uranium contamination on the reservation before I was born. And so those stories from my family are now relayed to me primarily through my mother and what I have left of my grandparents, it, whether that's like text or stories or photos. And so wow. poetry and writing to me is like this crude attempt to preserve them for my relatives and I, and hopefully someday my children. And it's always been a sense of, I think for native people in general, especially Dina, like preserving is survival. But now that we, I have the privilege of being in a space where I can sit with these stories. I want to find new ways of looking at them um, mm. and celebrating them rather than the anthropological way they've been used by non-natives in history. Mm. Like, um, for example, my grandfather would do a lot of interviews because he was this leader in his community. Um, he worked really hard to bring running water and plumbing and everything to his part of the reservation. And his interviews were often tokenized and his stories were often tokenized by white reporters. Um, and so finding ways to deconstruct that and instead find, find the story within that, um, those interviews and stuff and finding the real story there, I think is what is an example of how I'm using writing now um, as a creative outlet, I think. Now, that's a very long answer, but <laughs> I think it... No, it's a beautiful answer. It definitely begs some, some context, I think. Yeah. And do you, with your writing, do you prefer verbalizing it to people or that they read them or what's the difference there for you? Yeah, I always prefer reading. Um, I don't like performing my work. <laughs> I don't know if that's, really? I, I, yes, I really don't. I, I, most of my poetry before getting into the National Student Poets Program, mm -hmm. um, it was all written. And 
NSVP pushed me to perform and it was so uncomfortable because mm-hmm. I just hate I hate like reading poetry for an audience and I also think it and kills- you've been a performer though so that's so fascinating oh yeah me, right? no. <laughs> at this point I've been performing for like three or four years so it's like I'm used to it but I prefer I love poetry in part for its form which I'm sure a lot of people do um mm-hmm. like how it looks on a page and like how yeah. you can play with words and language and like reverse tropes and play with form to like push back against conventionality, which I think, for example, like native women and poets do very well. Um, Mm. And you can't really do that when it's spoken. Like you can kind of try to like Laylee Long Soldier does a really good job of doing that in some of her pieces, but it's very difficult. And also like, I'm not really into, I think I'm really bad at writing slam poetry. So I just don't (laughs) usually do it. Right, because there is some expectation of what that structure looks like, right? Oh, Often. yeah. Yeah. Uh, Especially for slam. It is very structured. Right. Mm. So, well, first of all, I love, I actually, because I'm not in the poetry world a lot, and I, I don't engage with it as much as I should, especially as a visual artist, but I love that you connected the visual aspect of poetry too. that like is really moving to me thinking about the actual physical words on a page. Um, so thanks for saying that. That's really beautiful. Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, so how has talking about visual then, and you are an artist and you are, um, you know, have this incredible influence on social media. I think the other day I was telling you, I'm like, your engagement, like if we're just talking (laughs) numbers and the technicalities of like what it is to have a social media presence and whatever, your engagement is insane. Oh my God. And there's a reason for that. It's because of what you're bringing to the table of social media, especially right now during COVID when the digital world is how we're all connecting. So can you talk about first, I want to get into to your your influence a lot, but first, how has social media played a role in your artwork? Yeah, I mean, at first <laughs> I used Instagram as like any middle schooler would um, and oh <laughs> very terribly, but um, and very cringily, but going, oh going into like mid high school, um, I, I used it pretty sparingly and I was involved with the urban Indian art scene in LA pretty early in high school. I was very, very lucky to be involved because I learned so much and I had so many mentors that from that experience, um, because I used to be an actor and into performing arts mm-hmm. and I met a lot of really young people in LA who were native through that. And social media allowed me to keep connecting with them and their friends and suddenly, you know, when I was like going to events and stuff, like I'd get a couple followers and I'd be like, oh my gosh, like more young by POC folks mm-hmm. who like I can connect with. And it just kept increasing like that very slowly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with National Student Poets Program, that's kind of when everything changed. And it was like, oh my God, like what's going on? Um, because that was, I think my junior year of high school, I would like go to shows and stuff or I would just yeah. do an interview or something. And then I would start to gain followers like crazy after like a show or after an interview was published and Mm -hmm. um, it just kept increasing. And so I think one, I was really lucky because I had portrayed myself as an artist on social media and we all know that like social media is very one dimensional. So people Mm -hmm. usually associate you with something that you do and that becomes like your defining trait online. Um, I was very lucky that I was like a poet first and foremost on social media because then a lot of my followers came from from that. But I think the best thing it's given me with my art is, first of all, like it's connected me with so many young, amazing artists I wouldn't have met otherwise, especially young Native artists in in L.A. Um, And it's really allowed me to put their artwork on a pedestal as well because a lot of my followers came from like things that I had done, like interviews and um, time magazine was like a huge one, but that didn't like, that's not the audience that I really wanted to be posting poetry for. Um, And I thought like for a hot second, like in high school, I was like, Oh, like I'm writing poetry kind of for them. Right. Like to help educate Mm -hmm. non-native people. And I thought that was the way to go. And then I realized like that's just what social media was kind of kind of telling me to do um 
And so it's actually helped a lot in focusing who I intend my pieces for and like what I'm doing and also being very careful about involving that in my professional life, you know, because like yeah. as an artist, again, like it's very one dimensional. And once people like hop onto what you're doing, that's all they're going to see you as. And so if you try to venture into other things, usually the reception isn't as great. Um, right. But now I, I don't know. I don't see myself as just one thing. I think in terms of art, Instagram and like social media has allowed me to actually do more than one thing, especially I think, well, with you, it's modeling is a huge thing. Um, Yes. And I didn't used to do that. And I think the thing that really got me into it was actually social media. And like, I really dislike the modeling industry. Um, (laughs) I really do. I mean, that's a whole other conversation, but it's a whole episode actually. (laughs) Yes, it is a whole episode. We hate modeling. (laughs) We hate the industry. Yeah. But with social media, for example, like modeling was transformed for me because although I dislike the industry, it became a way to lift up native designers and artisans and jewelers with the platform that I already had. And so I was like, hey, guys, like I think social media for me is just a big game sometimes because I'm like, hey, guys, like come look at my cute photos. And then I'll be like, surprise, (laughs) I'm wearing all native stuff and you should definitely get some. Amazing. Um, Yeah. Well, and you've even taken it so far as to launch an actual collective, which has grown so quickly to changing women like you've you've actually structured in a space to do exactly what you're talking about uplift and amplify and hold space for people there yeah and I think that's definitely the role that I see myself playing now with social media in my art Mm. it's less of a space for me to post my art because Mm. I can always do that off social media I can always quietly work and do what I do without having to amplify it but what really matters is having such a big platform for me is like sharing work by others and like giving them that same chance for amplification, you know, cause mm-hmm. I feel like it was all a matter of luck um, to mm-hmm. like have the platforms that I have grow very quickly. Cause it's just kind of, I feel like a game of chance with social media. And so there's that. And then also I have the privilege of having the time, energy and resources to like create the art that I do that got amplified in the first place. And so if I can share space or like give other people my space, I think that's definitely like what I want to focus on doing. Mm. And that's why you're my hero. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You do that so well and with so much love behind it. It's, it's really incredible. And I, and I think that that is part of the reason you you know when you say something people listen and it's because it's done with love and and just this depth of understanding um of why you're why you're mobilizing people and so maybe that's maybe why that (laughs) that's my next question you you literally mobilized thousands of people at the beginning of the pandemic to fund numerous mutual aid organizations can you tell me a bit about what that looked like? Yeah, <laughs> that all seems like both ages ago and like yesterday. Well, it really was yesterday. I'm still like doing that. <laughs> you're, you're still funding and and amplifying and mobilizing. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yes, I'm still I'm still doing that. Um, well, okay, it started with just a huge sense of urgency, and I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were getting calls from our relatives and like my friends back in Utah on the reservation who were asking around for help and like just getting toilet paper and paper towels and just basic goods that people dealing with the pandemic deserve to have. And that was like right before things got really bad. Um, Mm -hmm. And then it did get really bad. And none of my friends otherwise or nobody on social media really was saying anything about how like the Navajo Nation and Hopi and White Mountain Apache were suddenly skyrocketing to like the hot spots in the country with COVID, which had like effects just exacerbated by settler colonialism and the poor infrastructure that the federal government like condemned these reservations to have because of like not allotting enough resources, blah, blah, blah. Like, yes, like if you want to read more about it, I have things that you can read. We don't have to go into that right now, but um there was just like this, it was just a bunch of things happening where there was no money coming from the federal government because of the CARES Act. It like 
course they don't care about getting the money out to reservations fast enough. And no, like my friends weren't posting anything about it. And so it was just like this sense of like, Oh my God, like really, if nobody says anything, like if, if, if nobody's going to like consolidate this information, like I, I have to do it. Like I have the privilege of having these resources. I'm at home most of the time, like I can do this. And so like I did a ton of research um, and I did a ton of outreach to people who are running mutual aid organizations. And then I like spent a ton of time compiling all this information that was coming out into one place since I didn't see any sources that had everything compiled. And then um, I made sure to get the people who were running the grassroots organizations super involved and like actually talk to the people behind them. Because I think with like charities and like, I'm trying to think of the, it's like the opposite of mutual aid. It's like, um, basically like white people advocating yeah. for by POC communities, the way they come at it is like, Oh, you have to donate to these poor Brown people and like, please donate to this faceless organization. And like, that was not the reality of what was going on back home. It was like, these are our relatives. And these are like Navajo women who are running these mutual aid organizations like so well, but they just don't have the time to like post it all on social media. And they don't have the time to do their own outreach like right now. And so that's what I saw my role was kind of was these people are doing all the work like they're amazing and they deserve to have their organizations uplifted and they deserve to like have the amplification that they need to get more money and to get like stuff out there and so like mm. that whole rush of like the beginning of June was like all of that at once and it was just like it was like the response was great but I think what was really the most important was like communicating with people behind the mutual aid organizations. Like Amy yeah. from Arenda tribe was fantastic. Mm -hmm. And I mean, like we could go on about her as well. Like yes. <laughs> oh <my gosh. laughs> we love her. Um, but the siblings behind Hopi relief, like they made time to like call me and like um, protect native elders, like sent so many wonderful messages and Navajo strong, like buddy would reach out to me. And like, I think that was the most important thing was like, making sure people knew who were running these things and like making sure they got all the thanks and help that they needed. Um, and they, they are so inspiring, like such incredible people. And it's just like, that was, it was literally my, my role I think was just finding a way to make it easier to donate to them. And like, mm -hmm. because you know, like social, like if people don't have an easy way, like a Venmo or something, they're not going to like send money. <laughs> people oh. hate clicking on stuff, which is so right. unfortunate, but it's like, you have to really push them to donate. And so like, I would just be like, donate, 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 donate. And like, yes. <laughs> eventually we got like over $200,000 raised through Amazing. like my Instagram. Amazing. <laughs> and, and yeah, it's like you built this bridge and again, you did it with all of the research, all of the love, all of the mutual understanding that I think you know, coming from my perspective, from the white community, from a community that's really set on nonprofits and structures and, and like white saviorism and complexes that hold us back from actually listening and actually healing with people, you built this incredible bridge that has ultimately connected hundreds of thousands of dollars to places where it's the most healing. <laughs> it's it's the best work. It's it's just as amazing to me. Amazing. So in in light of that, <laughs> you've also you've not only mobilized people um, to fund the projects that are most worth funding um, and the communities that are most worth funding, but you've also used your social media to to call for accountability with other folks who may be going at many things wrong, one of which is cultural appropriation. Um, so as much as, as you feel comfortable, can you weigh in a bit on the use of, of accountability on social media, of the words and the existence of cancel culture, some of the, some of the, the benefits and the detriments around there? Yeah, I think <clears throat> in general, it's like such a hard thing to talk about especially now, because in general, I don't condone some of what cancel culture is about, but I think it's the important distinction is like, I saw something the other day um, that I think is really helpful in holding people accountable that I've been trying to think about as like, I use this huge platform and it's this idea of calling out versus calling in. 
And I have to think about it because I have such a large platform. And because of that, I have a lot of people who are willing to listen to me and, and what I post and like trust that as like true information. And because of that, I have to be like really, really particular about who I'm calling out. And I've only done it, I think, four or five times this summer. Right. Right. Um, half of which were like, I can say them specifically, like this is how careful yeah. I have to be is like, I can name each one. But like half of them were Yale students who had been like, just explicitly racist or anti-black and said terrible things. And there were like screenshots and evidence and there was really no excuse. And so like I called them out and had action items to like report them to the university and told other students to step up and do that as well. Cause that's just unacceptable, especially like with a campus with like such a history of being, you know, institutionally Mm -hmm. racist and colonial. And so I think calling out works in that way. which is like putting an immediate stop to harmful actions and preventing further harm. Like it kind of is just like a stop button. Um, And the same goes to the other half of who I was calling out, which were two white women who were, first of all, as you mentioned, culturally appropriating. And they were profiting off of it. Like they had very successful businesses built off of cultural appropriation, basically. Um, And then they were just inciting censorship and like gaslighting and just horrible things against mostly native women who were telling them to stop very nicely at first. Um, And the big difference with those women was like, at first that started as a calling in, which is when you talk directly to the person in private and like notify them of their harmful behavior and then tell them how they can stop it or like take some steps to do better. Because with calling in, it's like sometimes people do these things without a clear knowledge of like why it could be harmful but with these people they then didn't listen and instead they got angry and defensive and like started this whole thing which led to me switching tactics eventually and calling them out instead of in um, and having to engage a broader community call for help in reporting them to the Indian Arts and Crafts Board and like contact people who sold their items change buyers Mm -hmm. minds and that was fairly effective because calling out is effective only when there are steps to curb the harm or like react to it in a way um but I think however like with cancel culture in in general it's a bit of an addictive thing and that can get really Mm -hmm. bad really fast um Mm -hmm. I think people get hooked on it in a way and sometimes it's not always a call to directly stop harm being done I think when people are on edge they can kind of get it's kind of like a trend. And so I hate to like, I hate to call it cancel culture because there are, there are things that are just like not okay. And like, it right, should, causing so much harm. Yeah. right. Like causing real harm. And then there's like that blanket statement of cancel culture. And I think people have to be really specific. And it also on the other side of that prevents a narrative of growth and forgiveness. And mm-hmm. of course this is not in instances of racism and like really dangerous behavior that's intended to harm others, but more of like smaller things that fall under this blanket of cancel culture um, when it goes a little bit too far. And so that's my very long-winded rant on cancel culture. (laughs) Well, and that's something really important you said is that oftentimes the, the people that really have a hard time with publicly holding people accountable, um, and they feel like it's, you know, it goes too far and it ruins their life. Like all these things that are argued predominantly by people in power for why um, cancel culture is so negative, they often don't know the like depth of the harm. <laughs> like right. they're just so removed from the depth of the harm and they're so removed from all the calling in that has happened probably for years and years right. <laughs> with somebody who's causing some sort of deep-seated harm like this that they they just see the final outcome which is the okay it's it's time to remove you from this position of power right <laughs> whatever that means if that's your social media or if that's your acting job or whatever but they see the final result and not all of that um all of the like insane labor emotional labor physical labor the the things that have gone on often for for a really long time before that And so we'll say, well, you aren't having grace or you aren't, you know, all these things that I think as folks in power, we like to um, focus on the like happy, positive, we can all just go forward together. But um, I I like that you emphasize that that 
that happens before people aren't just diving in. Um, these are, there's a process to this too. Right. Well, I, I have two more (laughs) short questions for you. (laughs) I can ask you questions forever. You're full of wisdom. Um, how do you feel like others can utilize social media for good? I think always lifting up others through social media is like the easiest way that people can do good because social media is, especially Instagram is like so about the self. And I think that's great to an extent. Um, But I think it also should be used to lift up and like amplify others. And hopefully in a way that's not performative, but like recently a lot of my friends have been dedicating like their Instagram stories to like swipe up actionables and like creating infographics for their feed and leading by example. And I think that's really great because like, you can really inspire others to do good work through social media. And I think also like using social media for good as like a consumer, I guess that was the first thing was more as a producer. Um, But as a consumer, as a consumer, like you can share what you create to add dimension to your social media. And like, I mean, personally, I spend hours just looking at what other artists do and like I get inspired by what they create And so I think finding what is really healing for you on social media and like something that motivates you and spending some time consuming that and expressing gratitude for it, like leaving a comment and being like, Mm -hmm. I love this, like keep up the great work. I think that can be a really powerful tool and it's mutually beneficial because like the artist gets reassurance and motivation and validation and you have given gratitude, which I think is just like a really healing and wonderful thing. Um, And you also have this thing that will now inspire you to perhaps create or do something new. And I think social media is really good in like encouraging others to do what they love most in a healthy way. And so I think that's where it can be utilized for good. Hmm. And then finally, what does it mean to you to create well? Creating well to me is creating honestly and not for an audience, but for yourself and the communities that really matter to you, that you value your connection with. Amazing. Thank you so much, Gail. Like I said, I like I could talk to you forever. I'm so inspired by by your work and your collective's work. Um, so where can people find you and the collective you work with? Uh, can you give a few uh, Instagram handles and such? Oh my gosh, <clears throat> yes. Um, I'm at Kinsale Hughes, which is not that helpful. K I N S A L E H U E S. And Changing Woman Collective can be found at Changing Woman, but an X instead of an A in woman. So C-H-A-N-G-I-N-G-W-X-M-A-N. My sixth grade spelling championship self is living right now. really paid off. (laughs) If I misspelled that, somebody roast me on Instagram, please. Somebody. Oh, my gosh. Well, thank you so much. Um, Good luck with the work that you're doing at your internship this week. And um, hopefully I'll see you again soon. Yay. Yes, of course. Thank you so much. Thank you. And, oh, my gosh, as always, so much love for what you do. And I'm so excited for this podcast in general. So, yay. Thanks so much, Kinsale. Okay, we'll talk soon. And now for the Create Well Challenge of the Week. So for this week's challenge, we challenge you to find three new people who are doing an amazing job leveraging influence to impact and share their work with your community, whether that's online or in person, over text, or whatever you want to do. Thank you for joining us this week. If you're interested in supporting us, join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash create well. Our Patreon followers will have exclusive access to monthly live Q&As, extra photo content, and giveaways. Thank you to our first patron executive producer, Susan Anderson Nelson. And keep listening to hear our featured artist this week, our very own Ray Saragosa with her new song, They Say, one of my personal favorites. Oh,
college degree A $40 ticket and a $15 drink They say that folk music's for the elite They say we're living an American dream And if you work hard you will make money If they say that folk music's for But you'll do just fine if you stay healthy If you can't make rent then just get another job They say that happiness is for those who work hard Sing for me.